And as you're getting settled, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3, continuing our study of this Old Testament book. And we finished chapter 2 last week where Nehemiah finally verbalizes his burden to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And he had done his homework, the time was right, and he told the Jews there that all that God had put in and on his heart. And, those la- and in those last few verses of chapter 2, Nehemiah had three specific things to say. We saw three times where he spoke up, and those gave us some key motivators in serving the Lord and rising up to build for the Lord, in, as we've been talking about in our lives, in our homes, and in this church. And, and those motivators, just by way of quick review, were the reproach of brokenness, how the, the sin of Israel had led to the broken state of Jerusalem. And, and that was not only a shame to them personally, but it was a disgrace to the Lord. And Nehemiah wanted them to understand just how deep that went and how important that was to rectify. And then we talked about the reason to build, and that's because the good hand of the Lord was, was upon it. It was a good work that the Lord wanted done, and he loved the city of Jerusalem, and, and, and the Lord was in it. And really, what more reason do we need than, than that? And, and we know that the Lord is in us building our lives and building our homes and building this church to his glory. And if he's in it, then his good hand is upon it. And we can trust him, and that brought us to the third point, which was the response to battle, that even though there were enemies, and there certainly were, we're going to continue to see them as we move through this book. Nehemiah told them, I just love the way that chapter 2 ended, that they had no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Therefore, he was going to just trust the Lord, he was going to obey the Lord, and he was going to get to work anyway, in spite of, of what they were saying and doing. And in, in putting those enemies in their place, Nehemiah both energized and encouraged the Jews in Jerusalem to rise up to build. And so that's exactly what we see in chapter 3. We get to chapter 3 and we see the plan put in motion. The assignments are giving, given and the, the rebuilding project begins. And if you've happened to have read Nehemiah chapter 3, I, I, I hope you have, some of you at least, uh, it's, an in, it's an interesting chapter that, that, that many people, I think maybe even including myself, don't really know what to do with. Um, in fact, you'll find a num- number of commentaries that, that kind of skip it. Um, a, lot of, a lot of guys just kind of gloss over it. And I, and I certainly don't say that to condemn anyone. Truly, I, under, I understand why. Um, it's something I kind of struggled with much of this week because if you haven't read it, it's just a chapter consistent, consisting mostly of names and places. So it's just a list. It just lists the names of, where people, of, of the workers and where they were working along the wall or, or amongst one of the, the gates. And, and, and there are ten gates that we're going to see outlined in, in this chapter. And, and, and there are some cool things to see in, in those. We'll see that next week. We're going to hold off to talk about the gates until next week. Um, and we'll look at all the pictures, what those, those gates show us for our Christian life in that. But I didn't want to only discuss the gates. The chapter does cover a lot more than that. Um, I didn't want to cover the gates to the exclusion of the rest of the chapter. Because even though it's list and names, and that doesn't necessarily make for the easiest preaching, uh, at least, 
I, I do believe 2 Timothy 3.16, this is all scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That means even Nehemiah chapter 3 is profitable for us. And so I believe that, and, and, and so we're, so we're going we're gonna to look at it. And we're not necessarily going to read every verse. We're, we're going to read a few of them, and, and you'll see very quickly why we're not going to read every verse. But I'm going to give you an overview of the, the entire chapter, because there are at least what I believe to be some great nuggets and some great principles in understanding the work or knowing the task at hand. And that's the title of today's message knowing the task at hand because the truth is if you don't have a grasp of the job that you are supposed to do then how are you ever going to do it successfully you can't and what we're going to see in chapter three today is is the why and the how of building your life your family your home and this church to God's glory so my goal is that you leave here today knowing the task at hand Understanding full well what the work is about and how to do it and why it's worth doing. And again, this is, going to be a different, this is going to be a different type of message, and it's not necessarily my favorite type of message. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a plotter. I'm methodical. I, I love going verse by verse and digging in and doing the word studies and doing all that. And, and this is a little bit different. We're going to get an overview. We're going to, we're going to get some principles. But I, but I do believe God has something to show each and every one of us. This morning. So let's begin to break it down. And, and again, I'm not going to read every verse, but I want to give you a sampling of what this chapter looks like. So I'm going to read the first eight verses of this chapter, and then we're going to put together these principles that should bring some comprehension regarding the work of the Lord. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to need your grace this morning. So, I, you know, I, I take this very seriously, and I do a lot of work, and but before I, I preach a sermon on understanding pronunciations and how to pronounce. Listen, today was a lost cause. <laughs> I just, I started and I'm like, there's, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to roll with it. So just, just roll with me. And as we roll through a few names here, just, you know, I just, just keep on rolling and we'll roll together. But Nehemiah chapter three, starting in verse one. The Bible says, And Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Maah. They sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them built Zakur, the son of Emery. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz. Next unto them repaired Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Bana. And next unto them the Tzkoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiadai, the son of Pesah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, they laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, and under the throne of the governor on this side of the river. Next unto him repaired Azeel, the son of Harhiah, and the go of the goldsmiths. Next unto him repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the Pachatheres, and they fortified Jerusalem 
under the broad wall. Okay, I think after that pronunciation nightmare, We, we, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. I, I think you now understand why, you know, a quarter of this chapter is probably enough. I think your ears were going to start ringing uh, pretty soon. Uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word. Um, even in chapters like this that, that aren't always so obvious to see what you're trying to teach us, um, Lord, we know that there's something in there for us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you bring that out today, that, that you move me out of the way, that your Holy Spirit speaks clearly and authoritatively um, through me, and, and that your word goes forth as it should, and, 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 and that we view it the way we should. So, Lord, I know that, that we all come in here in different spots in our life, and we all have different needs. And, Lord, I pray that you meet them this morning. I pray that you meet us where we're at. And, and I pray that your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do to, to convince and to convict and to comfort and do all of the things that, that he does. Lord, I pray that everything is said is true to your word, and I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you, and we'll ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at a few aspects here. Again, this you know, a little bit of a struggle, but, but I think God showed me some things that should give all of us some level of understanding for building for the Lord. And, and so that you know why you should be involved and, and how to accomplish what is in front of you. And the first aspect that you need to understand is the significance of the work. The significance of the work. Now, this point and, and our last one, we have five points this morning. This one and the last one, get, they get to the why. Why you should do it. Why you should build your life and live your life in a way that glorifies the Lord. And, this, and the why starts with the significance of the work. These Jews that were working under Nehemiah, they understood the significance. Nehemiah was able to pass it on to them. Because look at what it says in verse 5. So we're just going to pull out some verses throughout uh, this message today. Verse 5, and, and under them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And we're going to talk about those nobles later on. But, but I, what I want you to catch here is the phrase at the end of this verse. This project was a work of the Lord. And, and not just any Lord, their Lord. A personal aspect to the work that they had in front of them. You see, this project was not just a construction project. This was the Lord's work. We, we talked about this some last time, how God's good hand was upon this good work. And even Nehemiah's enemies recognized the significance of it and what it meant to build up and to fortify Jerusalem. It's, it's why they were fighting so hard against it. Later on in this book, we're going to see in, in chapter 6, in verse 16, this verse, it says, And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen, that were about us saw these things. They were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And when it comes to significance, can I, can I tell you, you, you have to be able to understand that what you're doing in building your life and your home is a work for the Lord, and that work is more important than any other work out there. And that's because spiritual work is more important than physical work. Now, now, let me explain that because I want you to understand what I'm saying and understand what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying go quit your job and stand on the street corner and evangelize every day. That's crazy. Just like you don't need to quit your job so that you can pray without ceasing. No, you don't have to do that. You can pray without ceasing and still live in this world and have a job. You can be involved in the work of the Lord while having a job. In fact, it is the way that God set it up. This is what you need to understand about this point. So the question is, how do you manage it? How do you manage everything? You have a construction project that you're working on, but how do you manage the, the spiritual aspect of the work? How do you have a physical job and still be involved in the work of the Lord? Well, it's easy. You see everything is spiritual. That's what Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23 tells us. Servants, obey in all things your masters. This is an employer-employee context. Servant, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. Why? Fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You see, we're to do everything to the Lord. That's why Nehemiah 4.15 says, And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us that God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, everyone undo his work. Okay, so here it says his work, the individual's work. Before it says it was the work of the Lord. So was it the people's work or was it God's work? The answer is yes. Because to the Jews on this job, they were one and the same. You see, the construction project of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem was certainly, absolutely a physical task and a physical job. But it was so much more than that. Because they were doing it as to the Lord and not unto men. And you see, this is a problem in, in Christianity today that I see because we tend to silo our lives. So we have our, our work life, and we have our, our home life, and we have our church life. You know, maybe some of us have a ministry life. Listen, that's, that's the wrong way to view it. It's the wrong way to view life. If you are a blood-bought, born-again Christian listening to me this morning, you have one life. You have one life, and that life is Christ's life. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You see, at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you exchanged your old sinful life for his. And now he is to live through you in your home, at this church, at your job, everywhere you go. And so you've got to be able to see it that way if you want to understand the significance and if you want to understand how to manage this life working for the Lord. You're always on the job. Psalm 90, verses 16 and 17 says, Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. You see, for the Christian, there is no task that is secular. It is all sacred. There's no task that is secular. It is all sacred. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. We're laborers together, and listen, if, 
if for the Christian, nothing is secular, it's all sacred, that should give you some pause in how you attack life sometimes. Do you see it that way? Do you see it as sacred, a sacred thing, because you're doing it as unto the Lord? And again, the, the, what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3 is, is these guys understood it. Let's look at how the chapter starts. Verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Meha. They sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. And we're going to, again, we're going to talk in detail next week about, about the sheep gate when we go through the gates. But I, I want you to see that it's no coincidence that they start this project with the sheep gate. And the sheep gate was the closest, the gate that was closest to the temple entrance. And it's where they would bring the sheep in for the sacrifice. And again, we're going to see all the pictures in that next week. But today, I just want you to notice the phrase directly after it says where they, they builded the sheep gate. What did they do? They sanctified it. This is the only gate that was sanctified. And sanctified just means to set apart for a holy purpose. To set apart for a holy purpose. And I point that out because I want you to see how they viewed this rebuilding project. The, where, they, where they start out at with the sheep gate. They sanctified it because this project was set apart for a holy purpose. It was sacred to them. And you know what? Your home, your family, this church should all be sacred to you as well. How you represent the Lord at your job when dealing with others in the world, it should be sacred to you. Because you got one life, and it's Christ's life. So, so be living it in that framework, understanding the significance of everything you do. And, and how you go about life. Just how important it is for you to invest in your kids, in your grandkids, in this church. It's all a sacred task, and we should view it as such. But listen, sometimes I, it's, a hard thing to, it's a hard thing to grasp. It's, it's easy, but it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And, it's, and sometimes it's, it's a difficult thing to do, and I get it. So how are you going to do it? How are you going to live your life to God's glory, living your life unsiloed, considering it all to be unto the Lord? Well, that gets to our second point. Because in order to do it successfully, you need to understand the scope of work. You need to understand the scope of work. You need to understand what it is that you're actually doing. And to get to that answer, there are two primary words used throughout this chapter that tell us what the work is, the, the type of the work or the, or the scope of work, right? If you're in project management, you know, the, you know the, the, the triangle, scope, timeline, budget, right? And one moves, the, the, it, it affects the others. All right, so you got to understand the, the scope. you got to know what it is exactly that you're doing. Two words that really outline for us. The first one is build. And you see a form of that word, either build, builded, or built, seven times in this chapter. Every one of those seven are related to a gate in some way. And that's because the gates had to be completely rebuilt because they were made of wood and, and they had been burned down. Is what it said. All right, so there's the first word is built. The second word is repaired. Look at verse 4 again. And next unto them repaired, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel. Next unto them repaired, 
Zadok the son of Bana. Next unto them, the, to- the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And this just goes on and on and on 35 times. All right, so build seven times. Repaired, you see the word repaired 35 times in the 32 verses of this chapter. So what this means is that this rebuilding project wasn't from scratch. What they they weren't doing was building a new wall. They weren't bringing in new, new stones and new bricks. They were repairing the old wall and rebuilding it. So much of what they needed for the repair would have been right there in front of them. Nehemiah 1.3 said the walls were broken down, not disintegrated, not disappeared. There would have been rub, the rubble of the broken down walls laying there, as, as the Bible says, in waste. In Nehemiah 4.2, we'll see this in a couple weeks, it says the stones from the walls were in heaps of rubbish. So they were there. So what they would have done is they would have used what was already there to repair the wall. And and here's why that is important. It gets to the scope of the work for you. What is it that you're actually going to do when you're trying to build your life and trying to build your family, trying to build this church to God's glory? And there's a good principle here, and it's this. You can use what is already available and what has worked before. You build off the work that was already done. Kind of like Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22 tells us. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And what? Are built upon the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye were also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And, 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 and I don't want to go into this too far, but just very briefly, as, as Baptists, we trace our heritage back to those original believers in the first century, back to those apostles. Okay, so... So we're not Protestant. We didn't come out of the Protestant Reformation. And, and the one, we're, we, we trace our, our heritage back way before that. And the one constant from, from those first century believers to us today, since Jesus left this earth, has been their belief in and trust in God's word, as it has always been found in one form or another and passed down through the priesthood of believers. You know, as people died, so that their children and grandchildren could hold God's word in their hands and read it and learn it for themselves. And, and the problem, one of the problems that I see with Christians today is they've forgotten this concept. And they want something new. And they want something new and shiny to help them get through the day. They want to build a new wall. They don't want to pick up the same tool that everyone has used before them. That is still available and still able to repair your life. Why don't we contend for that? For God's word instead of some new idea that you think will work better. 
Jude 1 verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Listen, it was once delivered, but we still have it. Can I tell you in love that the world's ideas to solve your problems and repair your life and your home and even this church, they aren't better than what you'll find in this book. Isaiah 31.1, it's not on your outline sheet, but I think, we, I think we have it in the slide. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Egypt is a picture of the world. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And, and what that means is that this world isn't smarter and this book isn't outdated. You don't need something new. You can use what you've already got. It's completely authoritative and it's completely sufficient. Even in this day and age. And it saddens me to say that I think few people actually believe that today. Even in churches. Even people that would say the, the Bible is the authority, many of them wouldn't admit that it's sufficient to address all things pertaining to life and godliness, as 2 Peter 1.3 says it is. I mean, come on, this is the 21st century. The Bible for sure doesn't address all the stuff that we deal with today. And we've learned so much over the years in science and psychology, whatever else that we can use to help the Bible out. And if I'm going to fix my life and my home, there's good information out there that I need to use. And listen, I'm not saying that there isn't good information out there. There is. But if it's good, it finds its root somewhere in the Bible. It finds its root somewhere in the Lord. Because if you believe that you need something other than the Bible to do the spiritual work of the Lord in your life and in your home and in this church then I think you have a skewed view of the scope of the work of the Lord. You see, throughout history and throughout the Bible, the world has always sought, sought something new and something extra. But men of God haven't. And they've stuck by the stuff. For example, in Genesis 26, you see the story of Isaac. And he's kicked out of Gerar, he goes and he sets up camp outside the city. This is, this is when he was doing the same thing his father did. And he's, he's telling the king Abimelech there that his wife was a sister. And, and so he's repeating, you know, the sins of his father. And, and they kick him out of the city and he's setting up camp out of the city. And he and his men start digging wells for water, a picture of the word of God, by the way. Now there were already wells around that Abraham had dug. But they'd been filled in by the Philistines. That's Genesis 26, 15. It says, For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. All right, so there were wells. They just filled them in, the dirt. So what's Isaac do when he goes and he has to build some wells? Does he start over and build something new? Now look at what he does, verse 18. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham, his father. The Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. They had filled them in. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. 
he just got down in those same old wells and said, let's get this dirt out and let's get back to the water. He goes back to the same wells because he knew they had worked before and he didn't need something new. Another example is Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, he's in this famous battle with the prophets of Baal to see who actually did serve the one true God and they fought it out through an offering on an altar, a picture of worship through sacrifice, our service to the Lord, by the way. The prophets of Baal needed something new, so they made an altar, a man-made altar that shockingly didn't work. 1 Kings 18.26 says, And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from the morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. It was man-made. But what did Elijah do? Did he use that same man-made altar to call upon the Lord? Oh, look at verse 30 and see if this sounds familiar. And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He used the altar that was already there on Mount Carmel, which had already worked before. And listen, for us, in order to build our lives and our homes and this church, we should dust off and put in place what we know already works. And, and listen, like it or not, all I know is to stick to the Bible and let it be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. And people will say, well, well you're talking about building something in this series. And here's what you can't do. You can't build a church by only sticking to an old, outdated, weirdly worded Bible. And to that, first of all, I would say I don't care. My goal isn't to build a big church. My goal is to build lives. And whoever is willing to listen and do it God's way. And if it's not of God and it's not glorifying to God, I don't want any part of it anyway. But secondly, I would also ask why. Why? I don't, I don't actually know that that's true. I've seen it work before. And we do have the answer. And I think people out there want it. I, I, think, we're, I think we're the problem more than the Bible is the problem. I'll be honest with you. I think God can still work like he's worked before. And I think people are the main stumbling block. I think we just have to be faithful to what God is asking of us and he'll take care of the rest. And that's where we start on the how. We understand the scope of the work and the scope of the work is found in this book. But the next thing we see in Nehemiah 3 that helps us know how to accomplish all that God has for us is to understand the specificity of the work. Because as you go through this entire chapter, you see that each person or each group that was listed is given a very specific location and a very specific job to do. It starts with the sheep gate. The sheep gate was kind of in, in you know, I know I'm mirror image here, so this is wrong. For me, this is the northeast corner. For you, I know it's not. But the sheep gate is in that northeast corner, and they work counterclockwise around through, throughout this chapter. And, and that's how it lays out. And so you have individuals and groups given specific assignments. And that just tells us that each of us have a specific role to play in the body of Christ. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 last week, but it's worth looking at again. Verses 14 through 20 say, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? 
And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Now God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now there are many members, yet but one body. You see, Paul directly addresses the fact that everybody has a specific place and a specific role in the body. And listen, I wonder how many people here this morning have said to themselves at one time or another, I love to come to church, but I just don't feel like there's anything I can do here. Or I can't contribute to the work of the Lord because I don't have the abilities. Others know more than I do or whatever. And now, I promise you that I'm not trying to be unsympathetic to feelings of inadequacy. I know those feelings quite well, I assure you. But Paul's response to that line of thinking is very clear. Paul says, if your foot would say, well, I can't do everything that the hand does. That hand, man, that is so multifaceted. It's hooked onto that flexible arm. It's used all the time. I can't wiggle my toes like the hand can wiggle the fingers. I just can't do what the hand can do. Therefore, do I really even belong to this body? Well, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That does not make the foot any less part of the body. The foot is deceiving itself. That's what Paul says. If the ear says, because I can't see like an eye, I'm not even part of this body. The ear is deceiving itself. It's absolutely part of the body and not only a part, but plays a very specific an important role. And using this analogy, Paul is saying that if you are a member of this church and a member of the body of Christ, and you say to yourself, well, because I can't stand up and preach or teach or lead a ministry, there's really nothing I can do in the body of Christ. You are deceiving yourself. You have a role. And your role might be different than mine, but it is still important to the overall job getting done. That's why I said last week, when you don't take part in the body as God designed, you are breaking down the church brick by brick. But not only that, you're breaking down your home. Because at a minimum, you have a role there in your home. Remember the theme of this series. We're building our lives and our homes and this church. And you cannot separate any of them. We'll have a strong church when we have strong homes and strong families. And you'll have a strong home and a strong family when you have a strong life, personally. And it's interesting because in Nehemiah chapter 3, you find the word house 11 times. And most of them deal with the specific location where that person was building on the wall, just outside their house. So for example, look at verse 10. And next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of Harumaph, even over against his house. And you see verses like this throughout the chapter. You see the, the work of building starts with you. And it starts in your home. That's why you see men that God used like Joshua say this in Joshua 24, 15. Many of this ha have this verse in our home, at least the last portion of it. It says, and if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites... In whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, look at what God said about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. So for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, 
And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And, and listen, it talks about Abraham commanding his house. And, and, and there's, I'm, I'm certainly not for legalistic overparenting. All right, there is much damage that is done through that type of parenting. But, but did you know that there's also much damage done through too lenient of parenting as well? And there's a sliding scale on the age of your children, but, but our kids don't know what they need or what they want, and that's especially true the younger they are. So they shouldn't get to choose everything. I mean, some things, yes, but not everything. And, and this, this has to change with age. The older they get, of course, the more choices they need to be able to make. But Abraham commanded his house, and, and so there's a sense, I guess, in which I command my house too, but it, it looks like this. You know, my kids, while they've lived in my house their life, they didn't have a choice on whether they went to church or not. That was just what we did. And that's what they grew up knowing, and that's how I grew up too. And I know there's a lot of stuff pulling for time and attention, even on on Wednesday nights or whatever. But listen, I know what's best for my kids, so they're here. So build your house to God's glory and just see if he doesn't honor that. I bet he will. I know you want the best for your children too, so give them the best. And that's the Lord. And I could hang out there for a long time, but you don't want me to. And I got two more points to get through, so let's keep going. But you need to understand the specificity of the work and what your role is here at the church and in your home. And when you get that down, and when we all get that down, when others get that down too, then you're going to see the fourth point, and that's the synergy of the work. This goes hand in hand. This is directly related to the previous point because what we see in Nehemiah is that when everyone is doing their specific job, then the work gets done. You know, we're going to see, we've already talked about this, we're going to see the wall that was broken down for 141 years is repaired in 52 days. Because everyone understood their specific role and their synergy when everyone's working together. Not one person can do it on their own. It takes everybody. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we see 38 individuals listed, at least 15 groups, depending on, on how you're counting, and covering 42 different locations. And there are a couple things I want to point out in this chapter that really get to this synergy aspect of, of everyone working together. And the first is the diversity of the workers. The diversity of the workers. Within this chapter, you see the high priest, you see other priests, the Levites, you see goldsmiths, you see apothecaries or perfumers, you see merchants, rulers, women, children, groups from all over, groups that traveled in, and they're all working together. And there are some phrases that you see throughout the chapter, next unto him, next unto them, after him, after them. You just see these phrases, they're just working and repairing side by side. It's all part of how this chapter lists the names and the places, but it signifies that all different types of people from different upbringings and different perspectives were working together in unity to accomplish the Lord's work. And man, that's exactly what the church should be. It's what we talked about in the last point. We need everyone. We need all hands on deck. That means we need you. Back in 1 Corinthians 12, we, we see that everyone is different and yet everyone is important. Verses 4 through 6 says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. 
And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. And I don't care if you think you have nothing to offer. You do. Nehemiah used everyone. In fact, I want you to consider for a second who actually was in Jerusalem. Right? We talked about this when we did the intro. This was after the 70-year the, the period of, of captivity, of exile. And so they're returning, and there were a couple groups returned in the book of Ezra, one under Zerubbabel, one under Ezra, and now this group under Nehemiah. But that wasn't everybody. Jerusalem wasn't abandoned that whole time. It was under occupation. It wasn't under Israeli control, but it was, it was occupied, but it wasn't abandoned. And when the Babylonians came in and destroyed it, look at what 2 Kings 24, 14 says about this. It says, and he, this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar in general, and his general that we'll see, Nebuchadnezzar. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained. This would have been like the Daniels of the world. They all got taken away. To Babylon, and you know, then they were overtaken by the Medo-Persians, and so then they ended in Persia. But look, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people in the land. The poorest sort they didn't care about, and they left them. And we know from this verse, and we know from from verse twelve, even a couple verses earlier, and from Jeremiah ten. That they left the poorest sort just to care for the vineyards and the farms, right? They, the Babylonians still wanted to take what was available. Look at Jeremiah 39.10. But, but Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor of the people, which had nothing in the land of Judah, and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. And there's nowhere in the Bible where we see that the Babylonians came back to take captive this poorest sort. The poorest sort stayed in Jerusalem and, and raised the, the, the farms and the vineyards that the Babylonians came back and took and the leaders there took. And so through this 141-year period, what would have happened is the descendants of these poorest sorts would have still been there. And they, in fact, would have been the biggest group still in Jerusalem when Nehemiah shows up. So praise the Lord, because that's me. I'm of the poorest sort. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter what your past is or how worthless that you think you might be. There is a place for you on that wall. And even more than that, more than that the Lord needs you on that wall. We need everyone because there's the diversity in the work and in the workers. But the other aspect of the synergy of this work in Nehemiah chapter 3 was the devotion of the workers. Look at verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, earnestly repaired the other piece from the turning of the wall under the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. It says he earnestly repaired the wall. It means zealously, or, or we might say today, that, that dude is on fire for the Lord. Because he was devoted to the work. And it doesn't say that about anyone else specifically in chapter 3. But in Nehemiah 4, 6, it says they all had a mind to work. 
there was devotion to this cause, and we can learn a lot from that. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. You got one life. Man, do it with all your might. So this means working hard and working until the job is done, like Jesus, who in John 17 said he had finished the work of training his disciples that the Father had given him to do. He says it again when he was on the cross. It is finished. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, says, I have finished my course. And that's so important because today we see too many Christians who start on fire, but they burn out quicker than they should. You know, John Mark is, is an example of this in, in, in Acts 15. In Acts 15, 38, says, But Paul thought not good to take him with them, talking of John Mark, who departed from them, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. So he got tired along the way. And when they were in Pamphylia, he departed from the work. And, and now, now praise the Lord, he, he gets it right because we see him back in Paul's ministry in, in 2 Timothy. But, but at this time, Paul wasn't willing to take him because he had walked away. And this caused a great rift between Paul and Barnabas because he had departed from the work. He didn't finish the job that they were on. And at that point, Paul couldn't count on him. So if we want, because he wasn't devoted. He wasn't devoted to it. So if we want to get the job done here, we all have to be involved and we all have to be invested. We need devotion to the work of the Lord. But there's one more aspect of this work that we need to discuss. And this goes back to the why. And I think this is the most important aspect of all. And I believe this to be the key learning from Nehemiah chapter 3. I hope you've learned something else so far. But very quickly, I, I, I want you to hear this. And that is the story of the work. And when I say the story of the work, I mean the detailed account. You see, Nehemiah chapter 3 is a specific record of who did what. That's the story of the chapter. And so you need to know this morning that God keeps records. God keeps records. He keeps a record of your service or your lack of service. Remember verse 5 that we said we'd come back to? And it says, And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. The nobles thought they were too good for this work. They didn't want to be with the poorest sort. Or they thought the work was dangerous, so they, were, they weren't going to put their necks on the line. And, and maybe they were right. Maybe it was a dangerous work. And maybe what we do is a dangerous work. It seems to be getting more dangerous every day we go. But they weren't too good for it because none of us are. It may be dangerous, but it's worth it. And God knows. He knows exactly what you're doing. And he knows exactly what you're not doing. And it's all recorded. And listen, this is so interesting to me because I can't imagine that any of those 38 names listed in Nehemiah chapter 3, knew that they would end up in God's scripture, that we would be reading as part of a completed Bible 2,500 years later. You think they had any idea of that? And, and those nobles, you think they had any idea that they were being recorded for not putting their neck to the work? I mean, isn't that amazing? You see, everything you do for the Lord is important and impactful. Even if you never know it, 
No service to the Lord is wasted unless you're doing it in your flesh. And we've talked about that. And God keeps track. And he keeps track of everything. The Bible says he counts the hairs on our head. The Bible says he keeps our tears in a bottle. Because the Lord keeps records. He keeps a record of our faithful service. And our faithful service or lack thereof will be noted at the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be judged for our works or what we built. We don't have this on the slide, but, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the judgment seat of Christ, starting in verse 10, says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You see, we, our lives, we're in a building project. And, and the, the work that you're doing is being recorded. Or the work that you're not doing is being recorded. And we're going to give account, that's Romans 14, 12, we're going to give an account of ourselves to God. And we're going to give an account for what we did. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Of the things done in our body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And it's not talking about sins. We know that our sins were judged on Calvary. But what we did for him. And listen, this is the why. Oh, that we would live our lives in the light of the judgment seat. But that's just for the Christian. Maybe you're in here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior. Well, you're going to give an account to. And it will also be according to your works. Because that's the system that you chose to try to get to heaven if you didn't place your faith in Jesus Christ. But no amount of works is good enough to get you there. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it who's, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. You see, there is a record. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There's a story to be written in your life, just like there was in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that story will be read one day before the Lord, based on your works. Psalm 90 verse 9 says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. So let me ask you, how will your story read? Are you building for the Lord? Or are you just building for yourself? And if you're just building for yourself, I have to tell you that your day of judgment, whether that comes at the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne, is a day to be feared. And I'm afraid for many of us that the hymn, I wish I had given him more, will ring too true. It says, by and by when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. More, so much more. By and by when he holds out his hands, welcoming hands, nail-riven hands, 
by and by when he holds out his hands. I wish I had given him more. More, so much more. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we bring this service to an end, I just want to ask you to evaluate your life this morning. And I want you to use this time as we're going to sing this final song to see if there's anything within you to analyze your story and ask yourself how it's going to be read. And if it's, if it's going to be read in a way that you don't think will bring glory to the Lord and will be something for you to be feared, why don't you decide to change today? Or maybe you don't even know Jesus as your Savior. Will, if not, will you surrender to him in that way today? Use this time of worship as a time of reflection and prayer. That's what true worship is. And if, if you need to talk to someone, come forward. There'll be no one standing down here, but the altar is yours. Come find me if you have any questions about any of it. And, and analyze and ask yourself, how's that story going to read? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And, and thank you for even passages like this that are just lists. And, and yet, Lord, you have so much in them for us. And, and your word is so powerful and so true and so thankful for it. And Lord, I pray for all of us here. Where I, I think... There's probably none of us, myself included certainly, that if we were honest would say, yeah, I think my story's, I think my story's great. Um, and so we all fall short, and Lord, you know that, and, and because of that, your grace shines so brightly. And so we're so thankful for that. But Lord, help us to, with that understanding to then do the things in our lives and in our home and in this church to build for you. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us as a church, that the judgment seat of Christ is a day of rejoicing as we look on your face and say, Lord, I know it's not enough, but here's what I did. And so I, I pray that, that you'll use this in our life as a, as a point of evaluation. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.